Hi, everyone, and welcome to what is, I guess, the first episode of the Millennial Moron podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the pre-construction market, and my guest today is Michelle Ferugia, who is a mortgage broker and the founder of Cognitive Capital. She was also named one of the Canadian Mortgage Professionals Women of Influence and hosts the Cognitive Capital podcast about real estate, finance, and entrepreneurship. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I see you've done your research. <laughs> yes, I did find your webpage and write down some of it here. Uh, so I first found you through a really good video you did about a pre-construction buyer who thought they were going to make a huge amount of money off of a flip, but now it looks like they stand to lose upwards of half a million dollars potentially. And I really liked that video. I thought it was very clear and concise, and it was also understandable to the average person, which I think is really important because I think a lot of people are getting into real estate investing without really understanding what they're doing right now. Uh, so for those who haven't seen that video yet, can you tell us a bit about that case, uh, what the plan was and what ended up happening? Yeah. So essentially what happened, and we see this very often, is a buyer sourced a fake pre-approval or a pre-approval that had intention to look different two to three years down the line when the build, the build was complete. And essentially the build came up to be incomplete. Um, the client never actually had any intention of closing on that property. Their intention was to assign it before having to close and having to come up with the money or qualify for the mortgage. Obviously the market's taken quite a bit of a turn over the last couple of years and they don't have the income to qualify to close on that property. They don't have the down payment, even if the market stayed perfectly stable and they weren't capable of assigning it, they wouldn't have the income to qualify for that mortgage or the down payment to close on that property. And then you add in the fact that the markets come down, the property value is significantly lower. Now there's a much larger gap that that client needs to bridge and they're in a really sticky situation. They have been, they approached my team and were like, Hey, can you do anything about this? And it was us who actually realized that the property is not even worth what you purchased it for. No other person prior to them speaking to us suggested that they appraise the property. And they came to us in, you know, the last hour within, I think it was five business days of closing. And I just basically said, you know, you need to call everybody, you know, and try to source funds to bridge this gap or do whatever you can to close. And then we'll deal with it later. And they can't. Yeah. And uh, I think you uh, mentioned in the video, they had put down something like 10% on a $1.9 million property. And it was on, it was against an income of something like $90,000 a year. So like normally you would have to get some kind of pre-approval for financing to even put that deposit down, right? Correct. Most builders will not allow you to secure units without presenting a pre-approval. Right. And do you think, um, do you think the pre-construction market is more susceptible to that kind of fraud? Cause I mean, in this case, oh. if, if everything had gone to plan and they had done what they wanted, like they, uh, they thought they were going to earn about $400,000 in price appreciation over those years and then sell the assignment. And if that had worked, right, the, uh, the fraud would have never been discovered because there's no direct immediate victim to it. It's more of a, like the victim could be said to be society at large through distortion of the market. Um, so yeah, I mean, what's your take on that on, I guess, fraud in, in this particular space? I think it's a lot easier to do fraud in pre-construction because there's so many different milestones in pre-construction that just don't occur in resale. And you hit the nail on the head where if this specific scenario and kind of turn of events didn't happen, fraud in this specific instance would not have been discovered. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on which side of the coin you're on here, there's been a number of people who have successfully done this. And there's been a number of people who, of course, have not successfully done this and faced major consequences. So I think in general, the way that pre-constructions are handled on the finance side, 
has a lot of room for innovation. You basically are expected to get a pre-approval in a market that is likely not at all the same as the market that you're going to be closing in. Not only from an, you know, an economic standpoint, what are the cost of things? What is the cost of debt? But from a personal standpoint, if I look back three years ago, am I where I thought I'd be in my life? And that could be for better or for worse. So the duration of time between purchasing and making a commitment to an asset that is that expensive and then actually being expected to show up to the table and be able to close on it is really large. And I do not feel like across the board we have you know, positive practices in place to be able to protect not only the consumer, but the builder. And I think people forget that point too. I saw a lot of comments on my video like, oh, the builder's trying to screw people. It's like the builder now also has to deal with repercussions of this as well. So I think there's definitely a lot of room for innovation in this space. Yeah, and I have seen that in uh, you know various news stories over the past few years is um, people getting upset with builders for doing things like selling you know phase three of a project for less money than they sold phase two of because the market had taken a dip. And they thought, you know, they were being treated unfairly. But I mean, really, the buyer is or the builder has set up this pricing scheme because of what the market is. And then you agreed to pay for it. And because it changes before the house is built, it doesn't change their your contractual obligation of whatever you agreed to pay for it. Um, and I guess I, just to let you get into it more generally, um, yeah. what would you say are some of the key differences between pre-construction versus buying a, a completed or resale home? A completed or resale home, you pretty much are purchasing and closing on that within 120 days. It's very rare that you ever see somebody sign a purchase and sale agreement that is closing beyond four months out. And, you know, conveniently, that's the same period of time that you can hold a mortgage approval for. Pre-approval or full-blown approval typically expires after 120 days. That right there is the largest difference. And yes, there are some banks and lenders like RBC has a program where they will allow people purchasing a pre-construction to lock in a rate for up to two years, three years, whatever it is. Or sometimes builders will actually partner with a specific lending institution as their financing partner, or they'll do like builder financing that is good from the day that you sign until way, way down the line. But there are so many people who don't qualify to be a part of those programs, maybe there's people who need subprime financing to be able to close on a property and they don't fit into that bank box. The, the largest difference from a financing perspective is the duration of time that you're expected to originally qualify to be able to purchase the property and then actually have to show up and have the funds and the same income and all these things to be able to close on that property. I think the other big one that a lot of people don't realize when they get into pre-construction is Pre-construction is marketed to people who have no money, when in reality, pre-construction plays out as an investment type that should be made by people who have a lot more money. And what I mean by this is, if you're not capable of saving 20% of a house in one to three years in your life, why all of a sudden do you think that you're going to be capable of saving 20% in one to three years when you're purchasing this pre-construction? And people get kind of pulled into that marketing strategy of, okay, well, you can put, you know, just 5% down today at signing. And then we're just going to extend, you know, when you have to put the rest of the deposits down and people get tricked into that, that marketing idea when the average Canadian is not capable of saving that much money. Um, and then people don't even realize the difference between occupancy and closing dates. So people think that occupancy date means, okay, now I can get my mortgage. Occupancy date is a builder telling you, Hey, it's safe for you to come into this property, but that's not the actual closing date where you can get a mortgage. So people don't even realize that 
oftentimes between occupancy date and closing date, you're also going to be paying your builder rent. The closing costs on pre-construction properties are significantly higher than on resale properties. And then you have this duration of time and the movement of the market that can happen between, you know, purchasing and closing that makes this a significantly more cash intensive investment for Canadians usually than purchasing a resale property. Right. And um, so you've touched on what I'm about to ask uh, a lot in that answer um, about, you know, who's financially qualified to buy a pre-construction home versus just the minimum requirements. Um, and for example, in the case that uh, we talked about in that video, that buyer had borrowed their money for the deposit against their principal residence and really didn't have the money to play with. They had just, they were playing with paper money, really, mm -hmm. that they were borrowing and then having to pay interest on. So, uh, you know, who do you think is a, a good buyer for pre-construction? Like who should be in pre-construction? Who should not? Like who should avoid it? So there's a couple people that I think should be in pre-construction. Um, a lot of my really successful pre-construction clients are people who earn multiple six figures. They're looking for a different avenue to park their money in for a couple of years. They're capable of closing on properties, even if they don't necessarily want to. Um, and if they need to tenant it and rent it out, they're capable of dealing with negative cash flow for a period of time while they're moving through a market that they did not expect. Other people would be, I don't know, maybe you're a lawyer or you're a doctor and projectively you understand the direction that your income is going in. Maybe you're a fresh graduate. You have a little bit of cash. You want to be able to dump it into a property. You know exactly where your career is kind of moving over the next two to three years. Those types of people make sense from my perspective to be able to look at pre-constructions, new builds as an option. People who should absolutely not be looking at pre-construction or new builds as an option are people who are looking for options with minimal capital that they need to kind of access or, or put forth in order to secure real estate. Like that is the absolute wrong place for you to be in the pre-construction market if you're looking to spend as little money as possible in order to secure real estate. Yeah, and uh, to that point, um, the buyer in this case was trying to do an assignment sale, right? They're basically doing an assignment flip. They're trying to buy and sell a house at a profit before it's even been finished building building it. Um, so like, what are some of the nuances in, a, in an assignment sale versus a regular pre-construction purchase? So an assignment sale is different than a regular pre-construction purchase because when a builder first launches a pre-construction, they typically host events. Okay. So all over my Instagram story this week, I'm seeing all of my realtor friends at parties and launch events and everything. And there's this big, you know, we're launching this. This is amazing. Come buy it, come buy it, come buy it. Builders get, you know, realtors to market it everywhere. They themselves are marketing it everywhere. There's visibility of this property in front of people. You purchase it and then you are on whatever your deposit structure looks like. When you purchase an assignment from somebody who's already purchased that property, on the date that you purchase the assignment, you need to put down whatever the deposits are that have already been put down. So this is very different than resale or you know early first purchase of a pre-construction because you are expected to replenish to the person who is assigning you the property all of the money that they've already put down, even if closing is not for another year. So that's a very different thing to do from the buy side. And it's it's important for sellers to think about that because who has that kind of money? 
the smaller and smaller population has that amount of money. If you're talking about putting down 10 to 20% on a pre-construction prior to it closing, and then you have no idea what the mortgage qualification ability of that person is. So they might need to put significantly more money down, or they might qualify for a really large sum of debt, but they only have a little bit of capital on them. And it just totally changes the buyer profile that you're capable of capturing because the logistics of that transaction are so different. The biggest one that I see people not understand on an assignment is people just think, oh, we're just going to assign it. Like real estate sells like hotcakes in this country. Builders actually put different types of stipulations in their contracts that say you cannot assign this property or you can assign this property, but there's a cost of $20,000 to do it. Or you can assign this property, and this is a very common one, but you cannot list this property on the MLS. And that is where every other realtor is looking to find properties for their clients. So what that means for you is that your realtor basically needs to specifically find the buyer who wants to be able to purchase this property. And then you layer on all the other things that are different about being able to secure this property than other resales. And the marketability of an assignment gets very, very small because there's a very small pool of buyers who are capable of doing it, but then a very small pool of buyers who are even going to know that you're assigning your property because the marketing regulations around assignments from builders are very strict. Yeah. And I guess if you're talking about a multi-million dollar property, I mean, that's a pretty small pool of qualified buyers who are going to buy it outright. Yeah. And in that sense, like if someone has that kind of money to spend, why wouldn't they just buy their own pre-construction, wait for it to be done and then get a property that way? Exactly. Right. Like, do they like the finishes that you picked? Do they like the location that you bought it in? Like, I, I think that, you know, in general, what happened with this guy is this guy actually even, you know, it, this makes the story sadder. I believe he has five or six kids. And he, I, I think his mindset was, you know, this is a very expensive place to live. Like I need to hit big, win big in order to give my kids or whatever it is, the, the life and opportunity that they deserve. And people just go online or they hear about strategies that worked five or six years ago when the cost of builds were really, really low and getting in on the ground floor was a really great deal. It's like now the cost of supplies to build properties is not as low and, you know, supply and demand, all these other things. And then you tack on the trouble that people have assigning these properties. Like the mindset here is just totally off. And, and that I think is actually the broader issue. Of course, there's issues within the real estate market, but I think in general, the Canadian mentality surrounding generating wealth um, has quite a bit of a problem with it. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories that like people have contacted with me, contacted me with are like really unbelievable. Just like people have been uh, just absorbed into this idea that real estate is a surefire way to make money. And they've bet everything on that and it hasn't worked out. And, you know, I can't get into the details online because, you know, a lot of it is private stuff, but like some of them are um, very shocking and also very tragic for, you know, families who are relying on money to retire or for the kids education. And it's just evaporated because they did not understand the risk. Um, something else I want to talk about, this might be more of a question for a lawyer, but, uh, for assignment sales, I've also heard that if the buyer of the assignment fails to close, the builder can still have recourse against both that person and the original buyer, I guess, it depends on the details of the contract, but I think that's also yeah. a risk that a lot of people don't take into account. Yeah, that's definitely not a question that I can answer. Um, have I heard that before for sure, but 
different developers have completely different contracts the way that they've set themselves up. And I definitely think that would be a case by case basis and, and definitely something that you should pull your lawyer into. You should always pull your lawyer into if you're even assessing a pre-construction. I have clients who didn't even read the contract and I'm like, oh my gosh, like spend the 500, spend the thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Don't be cheap. Spend that money because you're, you're expecting to make $400,000, spend a thousand dollars to make sure that this contract is legitimate and it, it, it makes sense for you. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so to change topics a little bit, this is something I've talked about a lot in my videos, and uh, I know you wanted to talk about it as well, but leverage, right? Uh, and a lot of people say that the big advantage to real estate investing is that you have more access to leverage and that wealthy people use leverage to make more money. But there's also risks that come along with that. So, I mean, what do you think is an appropriate way to use leverage for real estate investment? I think in general, people throw around financial terms or like, you know, fad types of terms and they don't understand the logistics behind it. Like it's almost cool to use the word leverage today. Leverage is definitely something that wealthy people take advantage of to increase their wealth. I'll never argue that. Wealthy people taking advantage of leverage and having, you know, the tools in their toolkit to be able to buy and sell their way out of situations, to be able to continue earning more money, and maybe they'll take a loss, but it won't bankrupt them, is totally different than the tone that I see going on online, which is, hey, 19-year-old, hey, you know, 40-year-old who didn't really hit it big in life, you can buy property with $0 out of your own pocket. You're leaving no room for error. And whenever in your life have you done something with absolute perfect execution and you have never faced a bump in the road? I mean, like if you have, amazing. But I consider myself and a lot of people within my network to be pretty successful people and they're hitting road bumps left, right, and center. So leverage is definitely something that is a benefit of real estate that maybe you don't have that, that same type of opportunity if you're thinking about investing in your stock portfolio or buying in a startup company, but there's levels to this. Leverage should, your, your ideas about leverage should be increasing with your income, with your level of intelligence. It should not be looked at the way that I think many people in you know the social era are looking at it, where this is an opportunity for me to hit big and have absolutely no skin in the game. Because the skin in the game is actually your future self if this goes wrong and the bankruptcy and kind of debt that could come along from that if you make a terrible mistake. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of um, real estate loans in Canada are recourse loans, right? Or, you know, with pre-construction, it's a contractual obligation. So it's not limited to whatever you've put into it, right? It's They can come after you for your other assets as well. Like, Absolutely. Uh, so. Yeah. In this specific situation that brought me and you here today, this guy is now trying to take his house and he's trying to put it under a family member's name because he knows like mm. they can come for the different. It's not even just what you didn't close on, but it's like, what are the profits that this person is now losing out on as a result of your actions? And that number can continue and continue to grow. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen a lot of the same kind of bad advice, basically. I'll just say it that way. Bad advice on you know social media, online, people saying that. Uh, you know, just do this and you'll make tons of money, buy my course, whatever. But like to me, I've always thought that if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I can make you a whole bunch of money with you only having a little bit of money to put in and you don't have to do anything, that's extremely suspicious, right? I mean, it seems oh, like please. a scam to say, you know, you're going to add no productivity. You're only going to bring a bit of money and you're going to make a huge amount of money. Like, why wouldn't that person just take all the profits themselves? 
hundred percent. And I certainly think that there's, again, a lot of space for innovation, a lot of space for improvement within the regulations that surround real estate themselves. But the thing that I always discuss with my clients is you need to take accountability for the way that you navigate your life as a consumer. Nobody's coming to save you. We can sit here and talk about these things all day long and hope and pray and have, you know, constructive conversations and hope to drive change. But at the end of the day, each day we're waking up, this is still the reality we live in until it's not. So it's really important that don't even just take my advice. Don't just take your advice. Go fact check the things that you hear us saying online. You know, like you're a perfect example. Your wealth of knowledge is incredibly impressive for somebody who does not directly work in this industry. Like this is all self-taught and you are sitting up there with some of the most educated people in this space, in the country and able to keep up in those conversations. So I think it's really important that people take accountability for learning. Don't just bank on somebody telling you, oh, this is going to be something that's going to make you really rich. And then also look at that person. I sit behind the scenes and I see people's numbers all day long. And I'll take a look and like, I see people on social media and they're, they're talking like they have it all. And then they're coming to me like with a 500 credit score, they're absolutely leveraged to the max. They have not a dollar in their pocket and they're incredibly stressed. And then I see them post a video online, like check out how I got rich. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, a lot of people will say to me, you know, you don't work in the industry. Why should we trust you? And what I tell them is you shouldn't trust me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just a guy saying stuff online. I'm giving people sources and data that they can go and check themselves and then use that and go read other information and synthesize it all and make a conclusion for themselves. I think that's the key point mm -hmm. is that people need to be willing to do their own research and due diligence. Um, now, something, uh, yeah, something you mentioned a couple of times was that there's room for uh, innovation and making changes to regulations within, you know, the pre-construction space and the mortgage space. Um, do you have anything like specific in mind that is a change that you would like to see in the industry? Yeah, specifically the pre-construction space. I, I honestly think the whole thing needs to be revamped um, in the sense that it should not be legal for people to purchase a property without firm financing on it. And I don't know on, you know, a government or a tax level or on a builder level, how do they bake in protective measures for the other parties? Um, I'm sure that there's from different angles, different ways to look at why that might not be something that builders would enjoy. But when I sit here and I think about the fact that people can purchase and then be expected to close on a property in a completely different uh, you know, phase of an economic cycle, and that alone could be the reason that they are not able to close on a property. I think that's insane. Like I have so many clients in the pre-construction world right now trying to close on a property. Their income is exactly where it was supposed to be. They got a legitimate pre-approval when they secured the property. They have all the money down that they were supposed to have at the time of close. But now the properties just dropped 30% and a mortgage lender is only going to lend on the appraised value, not the purchase price. And now all of a sudden they're expected to come up with money that is, you know, not in their pocket, or maybe the property is still the same value, but the interest rates are three times as high as what they originally qualified to secure this, you know, property under were. And I just, I don't understand how that makes any sense. That is detrimental on both sides to the builders and to the clients. So I think there's a lot of room for innovation right there. Yeah. So maybe something akin to like the stress test for a regular mortgage or even, you know, the, the type of assessment that would be done on a typical business loan, just to make sure that 
people have finances that are robust enough to handle those kind of changes. That's interesting. I actually didn't think about it that way. I was more so thinking about it like, can you, you should be able to lock in your qualification and you should be able, a bank should have to commit to the purchase price. And they could build in different factors as to what, you know, maybe there's a, a, a top and a bottom of how that works. Um, but yours is interesting, just maybe creating a whole new stress test that is maybe a little bit more challenging um, to kind of, I guess, withstand the test of time. Yeah, I guess uh, I didn't think of it your way because I know Canadian banks are incredibly risk averse, right? Like they never want to take on anything that's going to even have a risk of making money, or at least that's how it seems to me. You know, yeah. everything needs to be either insured or has, you know, terms and conditions that will change things if the situation changes and they kind of push everything out onto the client, all of the risk or onto the client or onto other external bodies like insurers. For sure. Even like somebody commented on that video and said like they, that there should have to be a guaranteed appraisal. Like there should be rules surrounding when an appraiser appraisal of this property is capable of standing up against the financing. Like for example, it should have to be appraised at the time of purchase and banks should agree as to whether or not they, you know, want to loan on whatever the appraisal is at that time of purchase. It just makes me think like these are banks and I working so closely with banks and lending institutions. I think the average Canadian would be disgusted at what banks do and do not do what they do and do not understand. And you guys are supposed to be like some of the, you know, economic institutions leading our country. You're telling me that you're not capable of putting together some type of equation that factors in your risk of taking an appraised value at the time of purchase, as opposed to at the time of closing, like there must be something that you can create that is capable of doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we're at almost a half an hour here, so maybe we should start wrapping up. But uh, my last question that I had was, um, we're seeing obviously a lot of distressed deals in pre-construction right now, people who are unable to close, people who are stressed with, you know, prices dropping, rates going up. So do you think what we're seeing in pre-construction right now is likely to stay contained to that space? Or is this sort of the tip of the iceberg for larger issues in residential real estate? I think specifically that problem is going to be contained to the space just because of, again, the logistics of how you come about it. But I do think that prices are going to continue to go down. Um, I do think that we are going to see interest rates continue to increase. And I do think we're shifting over to a buyer's market. How low can it go is the question. I'm not really sure. Um, but it's definitely a different, totally different night and day market than we saw uh, during COVID. I'm not a believer in there's the best market for one type of buyer or seller. I think different markets work for different people. And it's really important that people sit down and figure out what their goals are. A lot of people will lose in the market that we're in right now. But young first-time home buyers, they might have an opportunity to step into a market that they couldn't get their foot into before if prices continue to decline. And that could be really exciting for the next generation of homeowners. Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming and being on the podcast. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Go check out the Cognitive Capital podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Millennial Moron podcast with me, Millennial Moron. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out Millennial Moron on YouTube for some video content. I know everyone says it in every podcast, but doing those things really does help me to keep making more content for you to enjoy. Thanks.